Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Well, Amanda, welcome back. Dr. Brenner, welcome to the Crescent Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So this is kind of a part two to that first episode with you, Amanda, which I'm so excited for the audience to hear really sharing your story with breast implant illness. And today we have Dr. Brenner on to talk more, you guys together in tandem about the holistic breast team you've created, as well as some information for women who are maybe considering getting breast implants or think they might have breast implant illness. So we're going to get maybe um, more of the medical perspective from this mm -hmm. from Dr. Brenner. Okay. So to, to kick us off, Dr. Brenner, can you give us just a little bit of your background? I'm sure it's super extensive, especially just after going over your website. But in terms of the breast implant illness, what got you to where you are today with that and where you are? Uh, well, first of all, first off, I am a plastic surgeon. Um, my office is in Beverly Hills. I, my background is <clears throat> I'm actually from LA, but I moved to the Midwest for college and for medical school and for my first residency in general surgery, and then moved back to the LA area for plastic surgery and have been in practice here since about 2006. I, I, since that time, even though I do full spectrum of plastic surgery, I have a very, I have and always have had a very heavy, uh, breast heavy practice, if you will. So it's always been a, a huge port, part of what I do. And that sort of way laid into re, you know, revision, breast surgery, managing breast implant complications. Um, and that's going back 15 years. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have done for that period of time, what I used to call um, cosmetic reconstruction of the breast, uh, because some, some patients who've had multiple, multiple, multiple operations of their breast, um, you know, it's, it's not the same as dealing with an unoperated breast. There's scar tissue and other factors that affect it. And you really have to have a, a full armamentarium of different techniques to handle it. So that the way that that kind of way lays into the breast implant illness uh, topic is that as you probably have discussed with Amanda before is, you know, patients are coming in, they're not feeling well. Uh, we've usually eliminated or had worked up with their primary care specialists, other things that could be causing their symptoms. and and have sort of said, well, nothing else is really making sense. Perhaps it's your breast implants, let's take them out. And so that, that poses a whole bunch of challenges for me as a surgeon, because you have, whether, whether the implants have been in for six months or for 25 years, uh, they have an effect on the breast tissue. Just, just the process of having had an implant put in has an impact on the breast tissue immediately and that changes over time so um you know it takes there's there it's not just as simple as 
taking out a breast implant and calling it a day. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. And so, mm -hmm. so I, I sort of tap into my cosmetic reconstructive skill set to, to handle a lot of these cases. Um, cause most patients <clears throat> need, in addition to breast, to, to removing their implants and to removing their capsules, they need breast lifts, uh, fat transfer, sometimes both. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, my, uh, and Amanda knows this very well. My, my philosophy is, well, p patients kind of in, came in initially to their surgeons to have breast implants because they wanted their breasts to be attractive. So I do my best to try to leave them that way when we're done. I love that. And then Amanda, can you share, you may have shared on the first interview, but can you just share how you and Dr. Brenner met and a little bit of what's gone into this holistic breast team you guys are working to create? Yes. or have created well when i finally figured out that my breast implants could be the root cause of my chronic illness and i started consulting with surgeons in beverly hills thinking it's the cosmetic capital of the world right and so they would be all too eager to help me remove them and see if that was the cause i was actually kind of dumbfounded that most of them said, no, this isn't the cause. Women who claim that their breast implants are making them sick, they're all crazy. And I said, but I just want to try this because I've tried everything else. Nothing's getting better and it's resonating with me. And they still really didn't seem keen on helping me remove them and were really pushing me to replace them. So for me, they just weren't the right surgeons. Uh, so when I found Dr. Brenner and it just seemed like I just it was a sign to me that I should give him a call. Um, I noticed that he was reconstructive. And from my experience working in plastic surgery, generally reconstructive surgeons just have a little more compassion than others. So I thought, well, maybe this is a sign and I should go for it. And when I told him my story and said, this is resonating with me and I feel like I want to take this chance, he said, okay, I think that's reasonable. Let's try removing them and, and see if you get better. And so it wasn't immediately after I started helping Dr. Brenner with his patients. Um, after surgery, I took six months to recover. And then I thought, well, I don't want to sell implants until at least we can figure out what's going on with these implants. That just, I couldn't from an integrity standpoint. So I worked in hair restoration for a short time and it just wasn't my cup of tea. So when Dr. Brenner asked me to handhold his patients through the explant process, I thought, absolutely, because I really wanted to be a patient advocate at that point. And uh, I said, but I insist on having a holistic breast team because it really took a village to get me better because during my seven-year journey with breast implant illness, I had started seeing holistic practitioners and they were all so amazing from acupuncture to Reiki and everything in between. And I thought, gosh, the average person doesn't even get to experience all these amazing practitioners. So I want to at least have it available for our patients. And Dr. Brenner said, okay, we can have the holistic breast team. So here we are. <laughs> I love that. So I want to get into now a little bit more of the nitty gritty of breast implant illness. And for someone who is maybe suspecting they have breast implant illness, what are some of the first steps you would recommend they take, whether it's from an emotional, a physiological perspective? 
I, I guess I will say this. I, many of the women who we get phone calls from, I would say, are really sick and they've been struggling and they've been trying to figure out what is causing their illness. I just got off the phone. That's why I wanted to mention this with a woman who she even said when she made her appointment, I don't, something's going on, but I don't think I have any of the symptoms. So I set up a phone call with all of our patients first to chat with them, get an overall idea of what's going on, why they might be making their appointment before they even come in to see Dr. Brenner. And so we set it up. We were going to speak this afternoon and I send them a list of symptoms associated with breast implant illness. I say, just review these please for our call and we can go over them. Well, within five minutes, she said, I have every single symptom on this list, every single one. I find that most women have quite a few of them. So that's the first step, you know, with that. Other women have already maybe joined um, a support group on Facebook, or they found me, the Holistic Beauty Coach, on Instagram, or they've been doing some sorts of research, or they've maybe watched a friend go through it and then watch the friend explant and start getting better. So that's typically how they start figuring things out. What do you think, Dr. B? Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from, from the medical standpoint, it's, you know, my, my uh, vantage point's a little bit different because w while I, while I'm really good at taking care of doing explants and things like that, I, you know, my, my first obligation is to do no harm and make sure that, <clears throat> that I'm not missing something super important. I mean, that's, I went to medical school. I'm not a holistic practitioner. That's not how I was trained. I'm Western trained. I'm a surgeon who was Western trained. And, and that's just very much kind of my, my, you know, we all, we all kind of have algorithms for everything we do. So while Amanda's right that patients ha can have a plethora of symptoms, some of them are more serious than others. And some of them can, can be symptoms of legitimate medical issues that need to be addressed separate and distinct from their implants. Maybe it has nothing to do with the implants. Maybe it was exacerbated by having implants and having perhaps immune compromise because of it. Um, you know, a lot, oftentimes patients come in and they'll say, oh, I have this, this, and this, but you know, number one and two predated me, my implants, but you know, four, five, six, seven, and eight started about, you know, six months after I had implants. Um, so it's, it's sometimes it's a little bit of a, um, of a chess game, trying to, trying to move around and figure out like what was, what's, the chronology was, what is and kind of what started first and, and whatnot. And, and uh, I mean, at this point, mo most patients that are coming in are either seeing Amanda or they were in some, uh, you know, on, on Instagram or TikTok or, or they've seen one of the other Facebook groups where um, one of my patients was like, hey, you know, I have my ex-plant with Dr. Brenner. Um, or just a direct patient, a lot of, a lot of direct patient referrals and, and direct physician referrals now of patients who are like, uh, who just had a good experience in our office and are feeling better. I mean, 
I mean, it's a, it's a little crazy to me, but we have a very, very, very high rate of patient improvement in symptoms after surgery. Um, I, I never, I, I say, I give the same kind of speech to everyone when I meet them that I can't guarantee that they're going to get better at all. Um, but, I, you know, men and I are pretty good at teasing out who's got it and who doesn't. And um, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm getting to the point, just interviewing people where I can tell, usually tell pretty, pretty well that they either do or they don't have it, or this is from breast implant illness and maybe these symptoms aren't, mm-hmm. um, but I don't have a crystal ball and I can't, and I, I can't hundred percent predict any of it, but mo- most patients are, are feeling better as soon as the, the day after surgery, which is very interesting to me. Yeah, that's phenomenal. What I want to distinguish here too is I imagine you guys have kind of two camps of women potentially looking for explants. It's women who have their natural breasts still intact and would just like to remove the implant. And then maybe women like, for example, breast cancer survivors who don't actually have their natural breasts still intact. And so there's kind of two different things there. What I want to touch on first before we get to maybe some other better implant alternatives is the surgery process. And when you have women who are coming in with BII, they've decided to do it. They're a candidate. The surgery date is scheduled. We already know they're sort of they're not in a great state of health and surgery can be a little bit traumatizing to the body. So I wanted to get both of your intakes on how to prepare the body for surgery, especially from a place of poor health. Well, um, you're, you're right. And everyone's different. I mean, um, and Amanda knows just last week we, I had a gal who, who came in, I mean, she was, she was, I think I saw her maybe back in, over the, over last summer. And we had initially planned on having, doing her surgery around the holidays, November, December. And so I sent her for her, her preoperative clearance exam, as I do with, with most, if not all of my BII patients, um, you know, and she came back, you know, uncontrolled hypertension, high blood pressure and, um, uh, uncontrolled, um, hypothyroidism and like she, I mean, it was like the first, the first time that I've, I've gotten actually a written medical clearance where the doctor's like, this patient is not capital N O T not cleared for surgery. And, you know, like red flags everywhere. So, you know, we took a couple months, got everything under control, um, and, and finally got her to surgery. So, but, and, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know if her high blood pressure is, is a result of just her having high blood pressure. I mean, there's lots of reasons that people have high blood pressure, many who don't have breast implants. And there's lots of patients that have uh, thyroid issues who don't have breast implants. And, you know, the thing is to, to get that, you know, you're not going to necessarily cure either one of those, but you can optimize them because neither one of those things are good for anyone who's, who's going in to have surgery. And so, you know, I can't have someone, my anesthetist will not put someone to sleep whose blood pressure is out of control. And likewise, if their thyroid is either way too high or way too low, they're not going to put them to sleep either. It's just not safe to do it electively. Um, So there's very much that, that sort of medical optimization aspect to preparing for surgery. 
which I, I kind of take the, the burden of, of handling that and coordinating that with, with their primary care docs and their specialists and whatnot. Um, you, you know, it, especially in light of the fact that we, you know, my nest test and I have noticed over the last year that, that there is a very, very, very high percentage of these patients who come to surgery very dehydrated and with what what we call neurocardiogenic effects. Not everybody, but a lot of them. And um, um, and you know, much, much, much more so dehydrated than than the average person who has who has not had anything to eat or drink since midnight, you know, right before surgery, because everyone fasts mm-hmm. surgery for like for elective surgery. But these but BII patients need a significantly, significantly more intravenous fluids before they start peeing normally, you know, which is the hallmark from a surgical standpoint of someone who's well hydrated. So um, that that's kind of that's kind of where where my my take is on the preoperative pre- preparation. Amanda's take is completely different. You want to explain? <laughs> that's great. This well, is a I fun mean, comparing it, contrast. It, it, she's preparing them in a very different way for stuff that mm-hmm. I'm not even paying attention to. So, <laughs> well, and that's why you have team members who you know you don't have to be the one hit wonder trying to juggle all the plates. You've got the team that can focus on the areas that they're most passionate about. So, Amanda, I'd love to hear. Well, and two, right, Leah? I mean, we think that I think there should be choices for patients, and I think that's a big part of why a lot of women choose our practice too. I've heard from many of them. Oh, we saw that you offer holistic services, so that's why we chose you, and that's only going to happen more and more in the future. I do want to say though that I have never worked for someone who has been like Dr. Brenner in the lengths that he goes to to check in with all of these women's other practitioners and he just raises the bar on on that and i think it's so important especially because some of these women they might have 10 other doctors rheumatologists gynecologists that they're also seen so i just i always say to him like where do you find the time to call (laughs) (laughs) so um So yes, it depends where the patient's coming from, how much time we have. We've had lots of patients, especially in the last, I don't know, say eight or nine months, who they're like, we're sick, we need to have surgery like as soon as possible. So they can't always follow what I would like to see them do as a protocol. And I think that you know, right, opening up your detox pathways is always a great idea. We have a team that consists of a lymphatic colonic specialist, Leah Joyner, who's amazing. I would love to see a patient have a couple of colonics, if possible, beforehand. Um, some lymphatic massage to open things up. Um, they might go and have some IV therapy beforehand, if possible. So depending on the patient's time restraints, um, their budgets, you know, what they're willing to do, I'm just saying like, I'm just trying to set an example of what is possible. And then it's really up to the patient to decide. A lot of these patients already come to us having found naturopaths already because they've been sick for a long time. And oftentimes they've already started down the path of looking for alternative practitioners. So, and that's fine. You know, we're here for you if you need it. And if you already have someone, great, stick with them. Yeah, a lot. So as a health practitioner, I'm a health coach. So 
Can you touch on just list out some of the other practitioners on your team? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have two naturopathic doctors, one in the Valley, and this is just simply for convenience, but she actually is amazing at healing the gut. She's fabulous. Also, Dr. Nikki Gill is fabulous at, um, and why I chose her as well, um, IVF and everything to do with fertility. She's amazing. So I chose her because she's also in the Valley. We also have Dr. Talay, who's in Dr. Brenner's building. She not only is convenient to those who are maybe in the Beverly Hills area, West Hollywood, but she also is really great with mold um, toxicity, which is important because a lot of women, it just so happens, who might live in a mold environment, but have also had implants for some reason with saline. We tend to see women, we don't know why, Sometimes they can have mold in their chest cavity, which is very difficult to detox from. So we have two. We have Leah Joyner, who is in West LA. She's a colonic, um, hydro colonic specialist. Um, she's amazing. We have Sarah Ann Stewart, who does, um, she's had BII herself. She's been through the whole journey. She does um, just one-on-one -on -one therapy you know, talk therapy. She's great. Um, and then Ruth Swissa, who also, she, she's great. Ruth's been around forever in our industry. She does um, permanent makeup, scar treatment. Um, and Dr. Brenner does such a beautiful job. I don't even think anybody would need it for scarring. But what she does is 3D areola um, permanent for women who have gone through double mastectomy. It's amazing. It looks so real. And so she does such beautiful work. I just wanted her to be part of our team. <laughs> so she's good. And then I'm a health coach. And Jasmine. And Jasmine. Oh my gosh. Jasmine, she's going to get very upset with you, Amanda. Okay. I love Jasmine. I actually almost went to see her today. Jasmine offers sonogram, and that's how I met you through Jasmine. Yes, and I really am an advocate of sonograms, and I just think it's amazing because sometimes, you know, women have gotten ruptures from having mammogram. So I think so. Yeah. Alternative. Yeah. Well, for anyone who doesn't know my story, I, Jasmine was the one who caught my stage one breast cancer. Oh. And I just found her independently but yeah that's she was on the podcast before and that's how we were connected how many years ago was that that was 2020 like the week that the world shut down I got that diagnosis no, you're kidding okay it was rough yeah but you're good if I hadn't if I hadn't been to Jasmine it would not have come up on mm -hmm. a mammogram or anything else and that's a whole nother story sure no it's fantastic but the oh, technology she's using is really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. Really can detect really small lesions. Yeah. So for the women who are maybe wanting to get their implants out, but have something better put in, or maybe they're a breast cancer survivor, they're really wanting some kind of implant, but they're wanting to know what is like the best option out there that maybe hopefully won't give me some of these symptoms. So what are you seeing women come in with who have the BII that are maybe the implants we want to avoid if you feel like you can touch on it without getting in trouble? <laughs> and then what are some better options? Um, yeah, I'm not going to get in any more trouble than I've already gotten into. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the, the truth is, is that as it goes with breast implant illness, 
I, I think it's completely independent of the type of implant. So I, I'm not, this is not to shoot down all of them or to single out any, any one of them, but I've, I've seen patients with just about every type of implant in the USA without mentioning any manufacturers, but there are four, four manufacturers in the, in the US anyway, at least currently. And I've, I've seen it with, with all of them, whether it be smooth implant, textured implant, silicone or silicone fill, silicone gel or saline fill. Um, and, you know, cause I, you know, back in the late eighties, early nineties, just prior to the 92 moratorium on silicone implants, you know, their emphasis really was on, on like this, all this being sort of like a silicone syndrome. And while, you know, patients with silicone implants do can and do get rupture and they can have what's called gel bleed where this, even with an intact shell and by intact, I mean, no, no gross rupture, no visible rupture. They still can get like bleed of the silicone through because you have an implant that is, you know, at 98.6 degrees for X number of years and, and there must be an effect on, on the shell mm. over time. So, you know, and, and there are patients that get silicone migration, whether it's just into the pocket around the implant or into their lymph nodes. I see it, you see it, especially when you do ultrasounds of lymph nodes on patients with ruptured silicone implants. Um, so, you know, in terms of their, I don't want, I don't want to get into the terminology of safe versus unsafe, but, but in terms of patients having, uh, breast implant illness, it, it can and does happen. I've seen it. I've seen it with just about every type of implant. Hmm. Yeah, patients are still getting breast implants, no matter how loud we speak, no matter how many people we talk to, no matter how many podcasts and how many millions of followers are hearing this, women still are going to choose to have breast implants, whether for cosmetic reasons or for reconstruction. That's just something that it's, I, I just don't see that ever changing. It, maybe not to the same degree or same numbers, but it's still going to happen. And and you know, plastic surgeons' jobs are to uh, to educate patients before you know, any surgeon's job is to educate a patient on on kind of the risks and benefits of the operation that they're about to do on their patient. And and I think we, I think we've taken some pretty good steps forward in terms of legislation with the FDA in, ter in terms of having patient checklists. And e even though we've always had you know, a quote unquote informed consent process, you know, I've always said that informed consent is not a document that you sign. Informed consent is a conversation that you have mm -hmm. with the patient. So, I mean, you can have, you know, pa patients get very overwhelmed. They come in, they got 40 pages to sign, but you, you just, I mean, you, you know, and, and I do this, during my consultation with, with somebody, if someone is, you know, wants to know about risks of implants, that's like the first thing out of my mouth is you, you can get this, 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 and this. BII never used to be on, the, on my list of explanations, but it certainly is now, as well as ALCL for texture devices. But uh, but I think as I think as long as patients are fully armed with all the information that they need and fully made aware. 
uh, and completely informed, actually informed, not just kind of strong-armed into signing a consent form. So, some some women who have have bilateral mastectomies um, and feel like they want the to have an implant because they want to have a breast mound because it's part of their femininity. I mean, I get that. I can't. I can empathize with it. I can't put myself in their shoes, but. Uh, you know, some people are not candidates for, you know, what we call autologous reconstruction. That's where you use your own tissue, like a latissimus muscle flap or a tram flap to rebuild the breast. I think they're great procedures, um, and there's certainly a lot more of them happening now than ever. But not everyone is a candidate for it, just like not everyone's a candidate for fat transfer to a breast, even though I think it's a great procedure. You have to have fat i can't take it from you know your your sister or cousin or best friend it has to come from you so so the you know the biggest limitations are the patient's own anatomy in, in some cases can i ask really quick are those two operations you just mentioned are those operations because i'm really uneducated in this operations that don't include an implant or those are types of operations you do with implants while using the, you know, for example, fat from another location? Well, that, that's a good question. The, it ultimately depends on how much tissue there is. Usually with, you know, with a latissimus muscle, you actually take the muscle and the skin from the back and believe it or not, and free it up and swing it around and, and bring it into the breast tissue. And, um, and while that's a great operation for bringing in muscle and skin and soft tissue, it's not a lot of volume that is associated with it. So most patients that have a latissimus flap opt for having an implant at the same time. You don't have to, but other, you know, it's almost like why do it if you're not going to have some amount, some significant amount of volume, um, you know, with a tram flap where you're taking the abdominal tissue, you, know, you most patients do not, you do not need an implant because there's, you're only going to do that if there's adequate tissue. Mm -hmm. so, and, the, and there are other flaps. Those are just the two more, most common. Um, but, uh, but, you know, fat, fat transfer is something that I, I do as primary breast augmentation in lieu of an implant. Uh, it's something that I've also done for a, a lot of revision breast reconstruction and other breast cases where you have asymmetries and imperfections and you just want to fill in because sometimes doing, doing a logistics flaps a big deal, putting a little bit of fat in is not as big of a production. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. If you remove my implant, um, the implant left a little bit of contour deformity on just the corner of my left breast. And so he filled it in with a little fat and it worked like a charm. Mm -hmm. I think it's great for that. I want to make it really clear though. I think you'd be surprised. I, I mean, I'm, not trying to get implants off the market. I say to each his own, but a woman who's been through this, you have to understand it'd be like if I was on a roller coaster and I had been in an accident, I'm going to be a little fearful to get on a roller coaster again. <laughs> and that's just being honest. Um, but I would just say that, you know, I had, a, I had breast implants because of a deformity. Someone like me or a woman who's had them because of having a double mastectomy, we want them to work out, right? More so probably than the cosmetic patients. So it's not like I'm one of those girls who said, cause they didn't work out for me. I don't want them to work out for someone else. You know, we want them to work. And then 
they don't. They don't. I would have just liked to have known that this could have been a possibility. So then at least I would have had a heads up, right? Then I just and look out for it and not have to not have to tread water for three years trying to figure it out. Yeah, because I would have got him out in year one, then year seven. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many how many patients tell me how they've had X, Y, and Z symptoms for so long. Had been to five, six, seven, eight different specialists. No one can figure out what's going on, and many of them actually just sort of have given up on trying to figure it out, and they've just sort of dealt with it and lived with it. And um, and it wasn't until reading, uh, you know, an article that we were talking about BII or going on a podcast or going online or talking to a friend when they're like, they, when they start hearing other women's stories, uh, it's like a light bulb goes off like, Oh crap. Well, that's exactly what I'm going through, which is kind of the same light bulb I had many years ago where, you know, I mean, initially this, if you asked me, I don't know, eight years ago, what's breast implant illness? It wasn't a term then. It didn't mm. exist as a, as a term. Um, and, you know, people, women started kind of trickling into the office saying, I think my implants are making me sick. And I was like, just like, just like the three plastic surgeons that Amanda saw before me, I'm like, your implants aren't making you sick. There's, I mean, they're fine. You're not infected. They're soft. You don't have a contracture. They're not ruptured. You're, there's nothing wrong with your implants. Um, and, you know, it was just a matter of eventually taking out a pair on a patient and having them get better and realizing that, okay, well, maybe, maybe there is something to it. And then having another patient with a similar story and another patient. Mm -hmm. and, another patient. and now, I mean, I don't know, Amanda, how many, <laughs> how many patients have we explained in the, since, uh, since St. Patrick's Day last year. It's got to be it's north of 100. So many. And then I have my Instagram that I have women from all over the country and all over the world who may not have explanted with us, but I hear all their stories. Then I hear all the stories of the women who are currently sick in other places. Then I hear all of the women who just as an advocate, I hear their story. So I'm inundated all day long, every day with these stories, plus all of our patients. So I hear it all. So then I'm reporting back to Dr. Brenner. Oh my goodness, you should have heard this story, that story. So I I hear it all, and it's it's difficult to take that on. I'm constantly saging myself because <laughs> <laughs> I take on all of that energy from all of these women, and their stories are heartbreaking. You know, they've removed organs that I'm not even sure they needed to have removed. They've lost their husbands who've left them because they were sick for so long. I've spoken to women in their 70s who have lost their livelihoods, lost relationships, but it's 70, they're figuring it out and saying, I'm, I'm gonna do this at 70. I just have to prove to myself that I can feel good even if it's for 10 or 20 more years. And I say, if you're suitable for surgery, go for it. Like it's never too late to regain your health. And I just, that's beautiful, but it's so sad that they've lost so many years. I mean, I lost seven years that I wanted to get married and have a family during those years that I missed out on. So, you know, this is, it's a tragedy all the way around that there wasn't more education. And hopefully by women like myself sharing our stories, what I hope is 
other women will figure it out faster. And they are. It's happening. I can absolutely see how it's a more nuanced discussion than maybe meets the eye. It's not necessarily just implants are good or bad. Implants should be on the market, yes or no. Because as you said, there's there's so many women who feel deformed or had an accident or had a surgery and having the implants could be life-changing for them in the best way. And who are we necessarily to take that away from them? But what I love, and I think such a great point that you made, Dr. Brenner, is women are going to be getting them anyways. Why not at least offer it here and offer it with true informed consent while also letting them know, hey, here's a possibility. This is something that can happen. Here's all the signs and symptoms to look out for. And if this happens, come on back. We're more than happy to help you. Yes. Great. Is that so difficult? Like, I just don't understand why that's so difficult. But when you say to a patient, women are crazy, when women have just paid for the roof over your head and the fancy car you're driving down the street, <laughs> you've put an implanted medical device in them that now they're sick from. And now you're calling them crazy. I have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. I have a big problem with that. Because guess what? Women like me, I'm not angry. Like I'm not, I was never angry at anyone, but to hear that they're still saying this about women, yeah, that's and, and to fix this. I mean, just to, to follow up on Amanda's point, you know, we, we're sort of to a degree finding an uphill battle because um, we definitely don't have tactical advantage yet. <laughs> There's just a lot of uh, voices without saying who and what, just a lot of voices that think that me and other people who are actually listening to patients and agreeing to take out their implants so that they can kind of move on, that we're crazy, right? That we're as crazy as the patients who are coming in asking us to do it. And and uh, I mean, I don't think that's the case. I'm happy to take like a mini mental status exam. <laughs> The, uh, the uh, you, you know, you have to ask, you know, they, a lot of, I hear a lot of, a lot of rhetoric, like, well, you know, these patients are out to get the implant companies. They're all angry and want us, you know, they think are litigious. And the fact is, is that patients just want to feel better. They're, they have no secondary gain. Like what you have to at some point stop and ask yourself, why would someone who has breast implants that are not ruptured, that are not malpositioned, sitting in the wrong place, that don't have a capsular contracture, that don't have an infection, that aren't having pain. Why would someone say, get rid of them and do a breast lift on me? I, I just, I can't take it anymore. I want to spend money and go through surgery and go through recovery and have more scars than I have now, my breasts, and, and risk this, that, and the other uh, complications. Because I mean, why? I mean, like, why would they sign up for that? Well, why? Like, why? If everything was hunky dory, why would you put yourself through that? It just doesn't make sense. I think that Dr. Brenner would agree. I mean, our all of our patients are lovely, but our BII patients—they're just not feeling well. And then when they get better, they're not angry. They're not litigious. They're not any of these things. And the beautiful part is. And this is why I thought Dr. Brenner was um, such an important person in this whole 
uh, movement, I thought to myself, you know, there need to be more surgeons who are good listeners and will acknowledge um, women because I saw so many practitioners during my journey and I didn't feel like anyone was listening to me. So I really felt heard for the first time. Someone compassionate who will take the time to listen and care. Someone who will do a proper explant. And I don't know, I say this all the time, practice makes perfect. I mean, all, sur all plastic surgeons know how to do an explant, but I wanna go to someone who's doing it on a routine basis. That's important to me. And then someone who can leave me looking as aesthetically pleasing as possible, because there is a risk when you remove them. But I would say our patients all say the same thing. Wow, I actually like my breasts. I mean, if I had a seriously a dollar for every woman who said it, I'm not even making this up. They said, why did I even get implants in the first place? I should have just come for a lift with Dr. Brenner after I had my kids or hmm. uh, I was talked into implants. I really just kind of wanted a lift. Or, so that's always nice to hear too. You could walk a block radius around my office and probably find about 20 guys who for a living just sit there and put implants in every, every day, all day long. Like that's, that's their model. So for someone like that, I can understand how it might feel threatening. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not telling them not to do it. I'm not, I'm not trying to boycott or pick it in front of their office. No. I'm simply saying when someone has these symptoms and they think that's this and there's nothing else and they have 10 doctors telling them that they can't find out anything wrong with them, but they feel like shit and they're fatigued and can't get out of bed and can't take care of their kids and their hair is falling out and they can't think straight and can't go to work because they have their brain fog is so bad. You know, if I can help alleviate that, why, why wouldn't I? Yeah, I think we just want to offer a service to a woman who's had the same reaction as me. And it's nice for them to have some a woman to talk to. I didn't have anyone to talk to because I didn't know what it was. So I always felt like I wanted to be there. And I feel like they really like having someone they can relate to. Mm -hmm. The question I want to end with is there's going to be many people who maybe can't come to your office directly. Mm -hmm. When it comes to looking for a surgeon and interviewing potential surgeons from both of your perspectives, what are some questions that a person should be asking to kind of help make sure they're potentially getting the best surgeon for them? That's a good question that I don't know that there's any one specific answer to, but I mean, you know, and I, I say this with a grain of salt because when someone walks into my office with a laundry list and they're like, well, where did you go to medical school? Where did you graduate? <laughs> and is your license up to date? And what hospital do you have privileges at? And are you board certified? When did you renew it? How many CME credits are you getting? How many explants did you do last week? How many did you do last year? You yeah. know, and like, <laughs> that could be overwhelming. And some, right, you you know some of those, some of the answers to those questions, you know, don't really mean anything. And right. so that's why I think it's so interesting from your perspective, like here's here's a question you should ask that really means something. Right. Well, so you, number one is what's your experience taking care of patients with this particular problem? I mean, that's a very kind of open-ended question. And, and, you know, you just need to sit there. I, and by the way, 
I, as, as a patient myself, I would say this, I would ask the same things to any surgeon that I was interviewing. Like, what's your experience? Is this in your wheelhouse? That's number one. Number two is, you know, I, I think from a plastic surgery standpoint, it's important to see before and after photos and, and results um, because, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. Um, and me and my office staff, we spend a lot of time organizing photos and getting them on Instagram and getting them on TikTok and getting them on my website and whatnot. So like do your due diligence, look on the, I mean, everyone has a website. If they, if, if someone does, if a surgeon doesn't have a website, <laughs> then you need to stop there because it's just, it's just an extension of your practice and an extension of the education process. Um, and then, you know, I would say the third thing is, do you have any patients that I can talk to that have had a similar experience? Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes patients are like afraid to ask me certain things. I mean, I, cer- I certainly know that sometimes patients don't want to call me because they don't want to bother me about <laughs> certain things. But I think even before surgery, um, they, they're like afraid to ask certain things or feel uncomfortable or for whatever reason that, that, that they're not, you know, when you're talking to someone who's been through it is a lot easier to ask and a lot easier to relate to. I mean, that those would probably be my three biggest things. I don't know, Amanda, what... Yeah. I mean, same sort of thing that I said before. I mean, I just believe practice makes perfect. I worked for a surgeon at one point who primarily did breasts. So when someone would call the office requesting a rhinoplasty, he'd even say, don't go to me, go to so-and-so, right? Because that's just not his deal. Um, I typically have always been the type to go, like if I know someone who's gone to a surgeon, would be more inclined to maybe go to that surgeon. Uh, pictures, are, I think, are huge. I always send our patients a lot of photos first before they even go in. So then they already have a feel for Dr. Brenner. I also send like podcast episodes that he's done and some um, some TV stuff that we've done or articles that he's written. So they already kind of have a feel for him before they've even met him. Um, and then... I would just kind of tag onto that in terms of breast implant illness. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Amanda said it earlier, any plastic, any board certified plastic surgeon worth their salt can do an explant. Mm-hmm. With capsulectomy, they can do an re- implant removal, they can do an implant replacement, they can probably do a breast lift, although that there's there's a lot of experience required with that. But, you know, does is that surgeon, A, do they believe that it's actually something do they believe that BAI exists? Because a lot of surgeons I know don't and are not shy about telling me that. What are they doing, if anything, to sort of kind of push the envelope? I mean, we're, this isn't like a, not just operating to operate. We're, you know, we're trying to take care of patients before and after surgery. Um, we're collecting data because I want to know like what percentage of my patients are feeling better and how much are they feeling better and what symptoms are improving and which ones are not mm-hmm. uh, so that I can more accurately convey that to other people. You know, I'm involved in, in other research studies outside my office specifically for BII. Amanda has organized a monthly, it's almost like a grand rounds with, uh, with mm-hmm. other, ex- other explant surgeons, excuse me, and advocates um, where we are sharing ideas and bringing each other up to speed on recent studies that we've 
either been involved with or read uh, in the journals or just findings that things that we've picked up on in our own practices. And so, you know, it's not, it's not just a matter of can you, can you physically do the operation? Right. They can do it. But if you think about it, mostly women will replace. So that's just why most plastic surgeons just aren't doing it on a regular basis because right. Most women are keep replacing them. So that's just why they wouldn't necessarily be routinely doing explants. So, yeah, I mean, we're no different than anyone else. We've just now kind of found this niche where we just happen to be explanting more. And Dr. Brenner had this amazing idea. I always think I have the best marketing ideas, but he actually had a better one in this particular case. I did? He did. Um, wow. He said, Amanda, you know, all these surgeons keep posting pictures of the capsules and that's fine here and there, but it's, they're kind of gross. Like who wants to look at them? Not me. So he said, why don't we post videos of the women after explanting testimonials of how they're feeling? Isn't that really what women want to know? <laughs> that's brilliant. And now it's become a thing where it was so cute. I would say like a month ago. I asked one of our patients, I said, would you do a testimonial? She said, would I? Are you kidding? I've been waiting for you to ask. <laughs> and I said, okay, cool. So now the women actually kind of look forward to doing their little testimonial video with Dr. B. And they go over all of the symptoms that are better. And oftentimes this is only like a month, three months after. Sometimes we'll get six months or a year. And already they've improved so much. So I think that's what also sets it apart. It's yeah. Like and just one thing that you were talking about earlier, Amanda, was feeling like it's a safe environment emotionally. I'm being listened to. Mm -hmm. I'm being empathized with, not sort of like, okay, this guy is going to do it or this, you know, surgeon is going to do it, but kind of begrudgingly. I don't think that we've had a patient yet. And Dr. Brenner can correct me if I'm wrong, that hasn't a BII patient that hasn't cried in their consult with Dr. B. They all tell me that they do. We, we've had one. We've had, we've had some that don't cry. But many do cry. And I yeah. always say, it's okay. He's used to it. He likes it. Cry. I, I, yeah, I'm used to that reaction from women. Is that <laughs> Yes, they all cry. When they <laughs> so, no, and so, but it's okay because we get it. He has the same surgical team. I call them the A team. Every single surgery, which is, I think, so important because they're all used to working together. They're all used to this. They made my whole experience. I mean, I was crying the morning of surgery because they were saying, you're going to get better today. And I was like that. I couldn't even grasp the fact that I maybe was going to like start feeling better. And they were so loving and supporting. And that made my whole experience as I laid on the table. I remember thinking like, how did I get so lucky to find them? So that's what I want every woman to feel. That was the drugs talking. He always <laughs> says that. No, it wasn't. I love that. Well, thank you both so much. I think this was so, so informative. And I just really appreciate both of you giving your time. I'll make sure, you know, in the show notes, we link to Dr. Brenner, your social channels, your website, Amanda, you as well, just so that awesome. for anyone who just this message really resonated, they'll be able to have those resources there. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Sam. Thanks so much. 